Hello and welcome to Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and today I have a very exciting episode for you. I am interviewing Antishuk Michal Martin. I wanted to get a sense of what it's like to be Taoiseach. What are the things he's proudest of in his career? All of the things that have brought him to this moment. And to ask him whether joining a political party like Fianna Fáil or any of them is like getting on a train or getting into a taxi. This is a Headstuff podcast recorded at the podcast studios. I kind of can't believe I'm saying this, but Taoiseach Michal Martin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I, I'm a little bit nervous, um, but we'll plough ahead anyway. Um, Congratulations on your podcast, by the way, and, and your work. Thank you so much. And I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Congratulations on my podcast. Every millennial has to have one now. Um, but so I've been aware of you. I mean, I'm from Cork, but also you've been a politician as long as I can remember. And all of the things that you have done have led you to this moment where you finally get to say that you are the Taoiseach. What are the moments you're most proud of in in that in your career so far? Well, there are many, uh, and um, some of them are individual issues you do for individual people, uh, which can bring its own reward when you get people through a particular crisis that they've been through in their life, be it health, be it whatever. Would but that be when they come to you in your constituency? In my constituency yeah, office. Yeah. And sometimes that opens up the system and, and you say to yourself, well, actually that shouldn't be happening to this person. We need a system-wide response. But okay. in, in, in the interim, you get the person through the crisis. The biggest thing I think was the smoking ban uh, in 2004. It was an extraordinary year-long campaign, more than a year, about 15 months. We passed very radical legislation at the time, which enabled us then eventually to, to do a whole range of things to try and denormalize cigarette smoking in society with the objective that the younger generations would not see smoking as normal because the whole objective of the tobacco industry was to get young people addicted when they were young. Uh, and was that kind my, of tough knowing that like a lot of people who would vote for you were smokers and wanted to have their cigarettes in the pub or in the plane or wherever it was that was smoking? It was at the time. Um, no, we didn't do any surveys or anything else at the time. As a Minister for Health, I was presented with fairly stark evidence from a research group that had been set up by the Office of Tobacco Control to basically do a peer review of international research on passive smoking. If you're mm-hmm. in a bar, if you're in a workplace and you inhale somebody else's smoke, can that be cancer causing? Can it damage you? And the answer was unequivocally yes. And all the studies said that. So I was left with a choice then. Do I fudge it? Do I say you can smoke in that corner of the room but not in the other corner? Uh, or, and I took it very fundamentally then and said, look, uh, it's like asbestos. You know, we, we wouldn't think twice about clearing out asbestos. Mm-hmm. It's the same issue. They're saying passive smoking is carcinogenic. So I had to move. We took a decision in over Christmas that year, uh, leading into January 2003 then, we announced that we were going to do uh, a smoking ban in the workplace, but mm-hmm. we gave 12 months uh, for people to get prepared and we had big campaigns. It was an enormous debate um, and there was ups and downs. It got delayed for three months because there was a piece of legislation which meant you had to refer to Europe, oh, wow, which okay. delayed it for three months. But in a way that worked out because it meant the March start as opposed to a January and it was a beautiful March morning. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> the sun was out so people didn't think too badly of it, you know. People didn't have uh, to Whereas in the freezing in January, morning. yeah. yeah. And, and then we discovered as we were going through it that lots of people wanted it to happen. Yeah. Uh, lots and lots of people wanted it to happen. And I, I would walk the streets and people would stop me in Patrick Street in Cork or in Dublin and say, keep going, keep going. We want this to happen. Um, and that gave me heart. And um, OK, OK, there was huge campaigns against it. 
and it's always something I remember, you know, the, the, the various episodes. We went to New York uh, because the anti-ban uh, uh, had formed a group, the Hospitality Alliance. They went to New York and said it was a disaster in New York City because New York City was the first city to do it. We were the first country in the world to do it. Uh, but I went to New York to get my own version of that. And of course, that wasn't the case. Wasn't and the I case. met Mike, Michael Bloomberg, was the um, mayor of New York at the time. And his officials were very helpful. And they said a very simple thing to us. We asked them, what would you do differently? And they said, we wouldn't have worried as much. Right. Okay. Well, so that's we said, what do you mean reassuring. by that? And uh, they said, well, the people will go with you. Uh, and um, But just get your compliance right. And I've learned a lot about compliance to public health measures ever since. You know, you don't go in with a heavy stick on day one. Uh, and so we did a bit of work on compliance. And I remember on the morning of the smoking ban, uh, the late Jerry Ryan sent an undercover reporter in to a Dockers pub in Dublin. The, you know, the, the late yeah. nights or the early mornings. Were they complying? And, and um, they, she went through the practice or the opening up a cigarette packet, taking out the fag. And just as she was lighting the fag, the, the barman said, no, uh-oh, can't do that. Today is the first day of the smoking ban. Jerry Ryan played that out on the 10 o'clock. There was a big cheer went up to the Department of Health. So quite saying that if, we, if we can get it done here, we're in business, you know. And it was just overwhelmingly then with the people. But there was always the brigade. We, we divided up the smokers into those people who smoke five or less wanted it to happen. Yeah. They wanted to give up the habit. Ten or less it emerged, wanted it to happen. But your 20 fag a day person they were it. very much against it. Yeah. Uh, and I and saw, what else are you super proud of? Well, I'm very, I very. say so. I, my mother said never use the word proud. Uh, she said it was one of the seven deadly sins. So we okay, <laughs> for a bit for using it. But anyway, what I loved, I was happy to do at the time in 1998 was special needs education. We brought in in 98 an automatic entitlement for children with special needs to a pupil-teacher ratio of their own. And at the time, they didn't have that. Autism wasn't even recognised as a special category demanding its own education response. So we would have brought in all the uh, special units and classes. We created new schools. Uh, we created um, a whole range of interventions such as SNAs. There was no SNAs in mainstream education before 98. It's grown to thousands and thousands now. Um, but So I was happy to make that intervention at the time. I'm still not happy about that, though. I think especially these children don't have access to therapies. I want them to have ready access to the speech and language to the to the OT and to the physio as well as others because early intervention is the key to progressing a child's ch- chances in life. And so when you brought those in were you the minister you were the minister for health? Education. Education. Okay and so yeah. as well, Sorry education apologies education for special needs health, health for, for, for the smoking, smoking ban. ban. Yeah. And the Taoiseach at the time would have been Bertie Ahern. Bertie Ahern. And so those are so like as the minister for health that was your that was your win, you know, you brought that in. But now as Taoiseach, do you get to, I'm just wondering about the role of Taoiseach. Do you get to bring your own agenda to the role or do you have to leave it to the Minister for Disabilities or the Minister for Health or the Minister for Education? Well, you do. You, you see, the problem for government is your touchstone that we all work on before we form a government okay. of this kind. So the, the implementation and delivery of the program for government is key and my inputs into that are, are there as well. So in education, yes. You know, I wanted, so for example, I wanted a new Department of Higher Education and Research uh, as part of the new government structures because likewise I would have been involved in really kickstarting major investment in research. Yeah. Uh, when I was Minister for Education, we did a PRTLI program, which was a major program at the time um, in, in, in universities and institutes of technology. And so I wanted to really, I think the future of the country is in third, third level and research too as well. You know, mm-hmm. we do need to be innovative as a country. We need new products, new solutions, new ideas. Uh, and we're world class in certain areas like the uh, immunology 
people don't realise we're world class in terms of our academics here and the That's how we got Luke O'Neill. That's how we got <laughs> Luke Well, you, kind of, yeah. yeah. We did put a lot of investment into that and it's so important. Yeah. It's like the Microbiome Institute in Cork. I don't know whether you're familiar with that, no. but that deals with the health of the gut. Oh, probiotics. I, I use their probiotics. Yeah. It's called yeah, uh, Alpharex. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, and I, I find that all, all that very exciting, but I think the future of the country is in we apply, getting that research, you need pure research, you need applied research, so there are companies that are manufacturing Irish kind of designed, developed, patented products that provide solutions to the world. And that's the future for Ireland in what is a globally competitive world in terms of economically. So you bring that agenda to the programme for government yeah. and then you sort of kind of see that I know it's different in a coalition because you don't kind of get total control over where the agendas go because you have to make allowances for other people. Um, so for example I'll give you take the roadmap for uh, schools reopening. Yeah. You know, I'm passionate about the schools reopening. I, I'm a, I suppose in life I sat it out as a teacher. Yeah. It's a passion of mine because my parents never had an education so they would have been very clear that the only real objective in life, well, they had many, but they really wanted us to have an education. Yeah. So we're part of that sort of Don O'Malley revolution in the late 60s where you get free access to second level education. So I go into Clash Street in Cork in 1973. That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Don O'Malley and the free second level education, which many people today wouldn't perhaps appreciate as much. But, you know, my parents left school at six, at six class. Yeah. That was it. They couldn't afford to go on to second level. So, and so all my life I've been passionate about education and opening up opportunity for, for, for people. So today I'd love as teacher, for example, that I'm still unhappy that children with special needs don't have access to the therapies and some parents are still not sure whether their child will have an appropriate placement in September and that's not right. Yeah. So I'd like to put an end to that if I can over the lifetime of this government and get better advocacy for the child within our education and health services. I think it's interesting that you talk about education because one of the reasons that you're actually on the podcast is because I have been met with um, on my Instagram following people who want to know about the government, who want to know how the country works, what the difference between Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin, the Greens, like what it is, but they education and information has been has been kind of what has been lacking. And so I started to sort of fill the vacuum because meeting people where they're at is important. And one of the questions that comes up again and again is people want to get involved in politics. I assume that Fianna Fáil want young people Absolutely. involved and that there is ogre and whatever. So say if I want to go to university, I read the prospectus for UL, for Trinity, for UCD, and then I make my decision. How do you think one should decide what political party to get involved with? What are the questions you need to be asking yourself? Well, I think you need to, first of all, ask yourself, how do you think society should be organised? How do you think society should be developed? What, what are the key issues for you as a person mm -hmm. in your community? in your city, in your county, and in your country, and globally then, you know. And um, that should then inform you to some degree as to which party you think approximates to that view. And also I take I would take time with it. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in a sort of, my mother's side of the family were steeped in, in the Fianna Fáil tradition because they were fought in the War of Independence and they were, took this, the, the anti-treaty side in the Civil War. Uh, I never my grandmother died when I was two and she seems to have been the matriarch politically okay. in the family she was a firebrand she, I don't know what that is uh, she was really kind of uh, how would I put it um, uh, when I would say a firebrand <laughs> she was a real agitator okay okay, uh, okay. activist right during the war of independence would have rescued you know she was worked in a mental hospital in Cork 
uh, Republican leaders would have ended up there to various means. Okay, she okay. had led him to the she famous leader Sean Moylan. She had led him out the back past the soldiers, and he hopped over the fence. She was fearless. Oh gosh. She laid out victims um, and had to lay them out. So you're coming from that sort of... Yeah, on the mother side. I'd call it an instinctive sort of thing, right? My father was more thinking... My mother never had any to think anything of. Okay. (laughs) That was the tribe she came from. Yeah. The father had a different background. I mean, his parents were... His father was in the British Army. His his brothers were in the British Army. One of them was a prisoner of war in Shangi, which was... Shangi is a famous... Mm -hmm. Infamous, sorry... Japanese prisoner of war in Singapore and when Singapore fell it was three years there he came out eight stone wow. so there was that kind of British army tradition on the father's side which he never wanted to talk about okay. and he himself then said he joined Devalier's army he was the one odd sheep in the family so to speak and he became a great he became he developed into a Fianna Fáiler as well and particularly he was friendly with Jack Lynch he played with football with him and all of that so he kind of grew up in that era uh, and but I then joined UCC I went to UCC it took a while because of the, the education thing and possibly the background, I joined the Fianna Fáil Common, okay. uh, a branch in, in, in UCC. And that's how it all started for me. I never thought, by the way, I'd be a TD. Never had any ambition at the time to be a TD. I simply wanted to be a history teacher. Uh, and one thing leads to another. So I'd say to young people today, look, you know, you don't have to make up your mind today. You could be a member of one party one year. In three years' time, you might join another party. That happens too. Uh, and there are many people, we, we sometimes joke about this, in the Green Party, whose parents would have been in the Fianna Fáil Party, or indeed in the Fine Gael parties, and Labour, you know. Th- th- you, you do get a degree of cross-fertilisation, you know. So and I would say to people, take your time. Uh, and how can d- people... Dip in and dip out of experiences, particularly if you're young and... Um, you know, th- 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 not everything in one party will you'll agree with. Yeah, so do you have yeah. to then... So it seems to me, how, so, okay, I guess yeah. this is a difficult question, but how, what would your Fianna Fáil prospectus to young people contain? What do you think it is about? I think one of the key things about Fianna Fáil historically has been that piece I just said about education, but there's a social philosophy there in terms of access to housing, okay. access to health, um, access to education uh, as key pillars in a, in a fairer health, type of society. housing and education. Yeah, they're, they're, they're to me are, are key issues. And, and then the party has always been historically with John Damas pro-enterprise. And so how you try and marry an enterprising economy whilst maintaining safety nets for people in terms of the, the, basics, of the basics of life like housing and health and, and, and education. I want to talk to you about ketchup for a second. Yeah, like actual tomato sauce. So you might remember that the old ketchup bottles were glass bottles, right? And then you couldn't like stick a spoon in, you couldn't stick a fork in, so you end up having to shake it out, hit the side of it, and then the tomato went everywhere and it looked like blood. And then all of a sudden, the plastic bottles came along. Well, the plastic bottles didn't just come along out of nowhere. They came along because of UX design. Now, it wasn't called UX research back then, but in the 80s, researchers went and they watched families using ketchup and they noticed that it was mainly the kids who wanted to eat the ketchup. But because the bottles were so difficult to use, the parents had to put it on their plate for them. So they came up with the plastic bottle idea so that kids could squeeze their own ketchup without it going all over their plates. Today, UX designers and research carry out that kind of research every day when building apps and websites and software. They identify and fix problems that make the experience of using the app or the website or the software just simpler, like swapping an awkward glass ketchup bottle for an easy-to-use squeezy one. 
If you found that interesting, you might want to look into the UX Design Institute, today's sponsor on this podcast. The UX Design Institute deliver university credit-rated online courses in UX design. So if you're considering a career change or you want to find out more about UX design, visit uxdesigninstitute.com forward slash basically. So I've been using this analogy. Now, yeah. I've been kind of using an analogy about your coalition, which is that if you leave coppers at three o'clock in the morning and you want to get to Cabra, so you stop an eight-seater taxi and you say, me and my friend want to go to Cabra. Taxi man says, I'm not going unless there's eight of you. So you're scrambling around Harcourt Street to find six other people who will go in the direction you want to go. So if if a, if people want to go to Dundrum, you're just not even going to ask them because they're just not aligned with your view. But, you know, if someone wants to go to Fibsborough, you might be like, OK, come on in. We'll all go in this direction. We're heading to Dublin 7. And so you get a coalition, right? And the taxi goes because you get your eight seats and off you go. In the same way... Uh, well, I suppose then there's the problem when someone's like, actually, it's Fibsborough, I want to get out now and the whole taxi falls apart, but we can get back to that. <laughs> In <laughs> if, if you're looking to join a party, yeah. right? Is joining a party like a taxi or is it like a train? So if I get on a train, the train is stopping in Port Leash with or without me. I can't change the direction of the train. But in a taxi, I can be like, actually, let's go to Athlone. If I join Fianna Fáil, can I bring my own passions and agendas yes. and change the where the party is going? Or do I have to just get on board with all the things you already stand for? No, I mean, I think it's much more flexible in the modern era. And that's a, that's a, politics is evolving. Political parties are evolving. And you can get off at any stop mm-hmm. if you wish. But I think what you, you've made a very good point there. You also can bring your own thoughts. And it, it's by... That's the big challenge in politics. You can go independent and be your own voice all of the time. But are you not a bit ineffective but then? You, then? That's the point. You, you don't really get delivery. That's why I favor the political party approach, that you can get things done. It can be very frustrating. There are people in the party you don't agree with, but you can get things done. And I'm I'm a person who believes in delivery and getting things done. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so, so people can bring things to the party. So I just look at the new TDs that are elected, you know, Christy yeah. Sullivan and West Cork. Like he stood up at the Parliamentary Party there recently and said, I'm a green tea, I'm a green. Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil. By green, he meant environmentally. Yes. He's very strong into the oceans and the seas and you often see clips from himself uh, and Holly Cairns, who's his partner, who's with the Social Democrats. Social Democrats, yeah. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the wildlife at sea and whales and porpoises and everything like that. And uh, that's the kind of refreshing contribution a new person can bring to a party. And do you, um, does the party... And, and, and create their own stamp over time. Like James Lawless, young TD in Kildare, like he was very strong on the online piece in the last oil mm-hmm. and kept pushing, pushing it out. He was very long, strong on the research side as well and very capable. Uh, so you can create... Uh, niches for yourself within a political party and you can actually become an authority on certain topics within the party and then the party looks to you. But um, if you come to... Because societies change, everything, things change all the time. New issues come on stream and sometimes parties can be slow to embrace those issues. You take an inf- you need an infusion of new blood to, to, to take the new issues on. So say if I want to join Fianna Fáil but I have a vision that's more aligned let's say with Fianna Gael or, or another party. Like a, like being a green Fianna Fáil or like I have real green agenda let's say by joining Fianna Fáil do I not dilute the the identity of the party would I not be better off joining a party that kind of aligns to that particular issue well, that no, I have I better no I, I, I think you know those issues in my view are, no, are now mainstream anyway you okay. know and I would have argued that 
historically, uh, you know, Eamon de Valera would have been responsible for the Arboretum in New Ross, which is an extraordinary um, place of, of, of just thousands of trees. trees yeah. um, and um, so it's not that far from the Esprit de Corps yeah. of when the party was founded. But the point is that over the, over the years, it can get dulled, it can get marginalized as an issue. And so you do need, I mean, I think there is that flexibility within parties. I mean, parties do change, they do evolve. I mean, yeah. parties are responsive. Because they're, they have they to have get elected. To be. Yeah. So you're responsive to electorates as well. So there's that dynamic going on that you kind of have a fundamental philosophy, but how it gets manifested from different eras changes. Okay, you so know? you have the, the sort of the three-legged stool of education, health and housing as Fianna Fáil, but the sort of the other stuff around that will change depending on who the TDs are, what, what the needs yeah. of the country are. Yeah, you'll get new inputs. I mean, for example, historically Fianna Fáil would have been, and younger people may not realise this, Fianna Fáil would, would have been one of the key initiators of, 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 of um, non-proliferation of nuclear weapons at the United Nations. Um, How did that? The famous foreign minister, um, Frank Aiken, who was a founding member of the party. Uh, he was one of the first signatories to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Ireland has an extraordinary tradition of uh, of, of non-partisanship in, in that and military neutrality. And that was something that Fianna Fáil from World War II onwards created. But particularly Aiken uh, in the late 40s and early 50s was a particularly adept at creating a, 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 an image of the country at United Nations level, right. which has stood the test of time. Uh, he was a very significant foreign minister, originally from Armagh, um, and um, that's something I'm very proud of as well, you know. Yeah. Now, that would have waned, like when we joined the European Union, you evolve, but even within the European Union, we have retained that military neutrality. And that's and, and also that has given us an unaligned status militarily, which enables us to be honest brokers in a lot of hotspots around the world. It's one of the reasons why Ireland, I think, did get elected to the Security Council of the United Nations, because a lot of countries don't see us as a threat. They see us as, on, see us as honest brokers yeah. who might can help to bring solutions to intractable problems. Because I, I'm, I'm as passionate as you are about education, I'm passionate about people, uh, civilians having a say yeah. in how the country is run and, and getting involved in politics. And I really want people to get involved. And so I guess what I'm trying to outline, and I don't want to send people in the wrong direction, but so if I was to join, it seems that there's a sort of a feeling among young people or particularly people who like might follow me on Instagram or who don't yeah. read the Irish Times or watch RT News that the 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 two big parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, are sort of these like trains set in motion and they've missed they've missed the chance to get joined those. Mm. And so other parties are kind of yeah, picking, meeting them where they're at, and picking them up, and maybe, maybe they don't even know that. Maybe they people don't actually align to the views of the parties that are picking them up, but at least they're meeting them. Is it, is it fair to say that even though Fianna Fáil in the past, I guess, is it fair to say that Fianna Fáil want new younger members who might not even know about the history of the party, the the De Valera and the Michael Collins rift, if you want to call a civil war a rift, that like there is space for a new vision. Absolutely, yeah, 100%. I mean, one of my jobs as leader when I took over, I just went out to people in the communities. My, my starting base for politics, by the way, is community. Sorry, say that again? My starting base for politics is community. Oh yeah, okay. I would say to young people, if you want to do nothing more than helping your community become a counsellor, Mm-hmm. You know, it's tough work, but it's 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 rewarding. You you can get things done. 
Um, and um, and that's the first starting off point for young people. Uh, and I would love to see young people coming forward to contest local elections. And one of my challenges as leader was to give them every assistance we could. Particularly after the economic crash, people wouldn't have had the resources to contest elections. So we created a central printing facility within the party to print leaflets for young people so as to try and reduce the cost of contesting elections. How much does it cost to run? Uh, well, it depends. You can do it. You can do it cheaply. You can yeah. do it. You know, I, actually, it's not money. Is a you know, but you do need. It's more time and like. It's I think sure. hard work. Yeah. Is, oh, by the way, politics is all hard work. Yeah. Tell me about that. It's ninety ninety five percent perspiration and five percent inspiration. I mean, it's when so when a young candidate wants to get elected, I, I did say you you need resources to do leaflets. You do, but fundamentally, you need to be knocking on doors. Yeah. You need to be out there in your community. How much grief are in, you met with on the doorsteps? Not that much. No. Depends on the mood of the people at a different time, but people will talk to you. People, the majority of people are unfailingly courteous. Uh, I, I've spent the last 10 years prior to becoming a teacher knocking on doors for different candidates around the country. I, I, I kind of rebuilt it from the ground up with, with other colleagues. We, I, I would say to a young candidate, look, um, we'll go out Wednesday night. We're just knocking 200 doors. Let's listen to the people. And does the criticism that you, because I don't know that there's another job that you are in moral negative equity just by being a politician. Like, just because you are who you are, it doesn't matter your background, your life, they just don't like you. Does that get to you? Because I get tweets, negative tweets about my podcast or my hair or whatever, yeah. and it gets to me. I don't know that I have... I the, think social media has injected a new sort of attitude and mood and hostility that I don't like. And um, Are you on social media? Yeah, when, when you, I have a Twitter account and Facebook oh, social, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But... I don't engage that much. I, I put up my own sort of messages and stuff yeah. like that and points, and but I don't actually enter into a Barney because I think that's fruitless. It's fruitless. Um, and I think you, we get the usual trolls and people just having a go. And, uh, and does it of, penetrate? Like No, and I have to work to make sure it doesn't and right. um, tell the family and everybody just ignore it. Uh, one of the concerns I'd have is that social media can drive decision making too quickly and uh, you know a wave of stuff happens one night and everyone is... Like you mean example in high dough, anything, uh, you know, it could be it could be the the travel issue, for example. I mean, okay. there was a period there three weeks ago when one imagined that there was millions flying into Ireland, and yeah. that we've had the lowest level of inward and outward traffic ever. I mean, it's simply collapsed because it amplifies a single it, voice. Yeah, exactly. And uh, do this and do that, and you've got to stand back. There are all sorts of reasons why things aren't immediately doable uh, in life, but social media creates a sort of an uh, an immediacy about things and an urgency about things. Which Sometimes, you know, it has its positives as well, but sometimes I think that can be against good, sensible decision making. But it's the hostility I don't like, and that can affect people, and it can affect young people in particular, and their mental health. And uh, if you're starting out in politics now, it's a much different story to when I started out in politics. We didn't have that. Yeah. Okay, you'd knock on doors, and people would give to you on a doorstep if there was a lot of unemployment at the time in the 80s and that. But you, you, you listening to people is a fantastic discipline and it's something politicians have to learn to do more and more we we tend to talk a lot but I love going on the doorstep um, because I'm not afraid of the doorstep and you're meeting real people in their houses yes uh, and, and I uh, guess people are a lot less confrontational yeah. in person when they can hide behind a Twitter account they'll say all sorts of things yeah that's I think that's the you've summed it up you, yeah. you have summed it up you know and then I've had I, I've always been faithful to my weekly clinics now since I became teacher again COVID-19 I haven't been able to restart so how does them. that work? I go down to Mahan in Cork or Balfihan um, or Ballinlock 
and uh, people come and see me. And um, okay. I always felt it was a great touchstone because I mentioned earlier special needs and in the late 90s, I remember the clinics in Bellevihan and people just coming in, parents coming in, I'm saying, there's something wrong here. Yeah. And that leads you then to a to changing the system. I think a lot of um, people who, particularly who follow me, I've I've been, people come to me with issues and I'm like, talk to your local TD and they don't really even realise that that is an option. Like, what are the sorts of things that would come into your clinics? Well, healthcare is huge. So like Could medical be. cards. Medical cards, but also like somebody might need treat, treatment abroad for a specific illness and you might need to help them navigate the system to make sure they get their entitlement to treatment abroad. Mm-hmm. It could be a specific type of operation or procedure um, that can't be done here. Uh, and you just make sure that, that, that the system works for that person. Yeah. Or, or if the system says no initially, you might argue Push and advocate for that person. Yeah. I've, I've been involved in a lot of those cases. A lot of special needs comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, and increasingly, I, I'm, that, that's why I mentioned the thing earlier about advocacy. I'm not concerned that the system is good for at the moment in terms of or optimal in terms of advocating for the child. So you, you do pick up a lot. You get all sorts of cases can come your way. People come in terms of their companies or in terms of changing policy, you know, they yeah. might want a certain policy changed. You'll get various sectors will come from tourism, from, from community-based organizations will come. So it's kind of a job where you just go in on the day, you don't know what's going to be sitting in front That's of you. That's the great thing about politics. Yeah. Um, well, it's a great thing if you're able for it. I think it would You, you know that you have out. no order day, like there's no. no structure day. You start off in the morning thinking you're doing certain things and by tea time, it could be totally different. And now like as a Taoiseach, what, like how many hours a day are you kind of working? Well, I've always worked, f- once I'm on duty, I'm, I'm um, I suppose, 12, 15 hours a day. It, it, you know, I leave last night at 11 o'clock. And like with the, I know the doll is sitting now in the convention centre and yeah. like some of the topical issues are being five past midnight. Like uh, that was, uh, in fairness, we overloaded for the month of July. Okay. We had a very proactive, we got 11 pieces of legislation done, which I think is unprecedented. Had to be done for to underpin the economic stimulus as a result of COVID. Set up the new Department of Higher Education Research, um, make sure the pandemic unemployment payment was on a proper legal footing, do the new employment wage subsidy. So there's lots of things had to be done. Uh, and we just got about it. And I think there was phenomenal work done in, in that month of July. But that doesn't get told then. That's one yeah. of the issues because we do a lot of other things that distract ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and the politics gets huge coverage the actual substantial stuff that gets done on a day-to-day basis doesn't exactly get it's the same coverage. because it doesn't sell papers and it's not Correct, yeah. And that's, like that's something I've, I'm kind of saying a lot more now to commentators and to people. Like we yeah. do, and that applies to young people interested in politics. I'm sure they're interested in the well, it's definitely, what gets done like and what's the, what's the outcome of certain laws that are passed and certain decisions that are taken on their daily lives, you know. And that was why the first question I asked you was, what are you most proud of? Like, I don't think a lot of people know that you brought in smoking ban. I think people, I think the the media love to look at what you're not doing and what's yeah, going wrong. I, and because it's, because it's, it's sexy to have people complaining and it sells papers, you know. It does, but to be fair, we do need to be held to account and we do need of to course. be buffeted and we do need to, you know, there's that tension there, which is a healthy tension in a democracy. The great thing about the country, and that's why I love, I always encourage young people. I, I go into second level schools. It's a piece of the job I love doing and particularly love the last couple of years. And I talk to Leaving Certs or a politics class. I don't ever talk between a foil in that sense. I might get asked questions because I don't think yeah. it's right to proselytize to young people. I think you have to be open. So I tell them all, look, get involved in your community. It could be a sports organization. It could be a community association. You could join a political party. You could join a campaign, but just get involved. That's the first message I give to young yeah, yeah. people. And I say, you have to be 
concerned about the wider world. It's not just about yourself and it's about your school, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think that that's where I come from, really. And I think, but there will, but there will always be challenges and you do need to be challenged as a politician. And that's why I said to young people in Ireland, we, we have a very important thing called freedom of speech, free media, separation of powers. We have a democracy here. Yeah. Not f- perfect. But when you look at what's going on in countries like Turkey, now increasingly Hungary and Poland, even though they're in the European Union, China, Russia, a lot of authoritarianism around the world. The one thing we should celebrate in Ireland and work at and work at it like it needs working at is democracy. And the only way we can work at it and preserve it is for people to, to get involved in some shape or form. And you mentioned earlier the, the, the marriage equality referendum and the Eighth Amendment referendum to me told me something that young people are more than anxious to get involved but it may be campaigns in the future yes and that's fine too yep. you know it may, they may not join political parties and the strength of political parties has weakened over 50 years so I think you'll have more f- movement it'll be fluid yeah. and I think people will, will, will test parties that way uh, and I think that there was a degree of activism on marriage equality that was phenomenal uh, and, and very heartwarming I thought I thought so too. I have one final question for you before we finish and thank you so much. Is there any place or any time of the day where you can where you can just be Nihal Martin, not the Taoiseach, where you can close the door and F and blind and complain and do all oh, yeah, say all yeah. the things that you want? Um at the moment, since I became teacher, it's getting obviously you're 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 busier and so on like that. But what I tend to do during the lockdown though, for example, I got a bit more reading done. Mm-hmm. Um I love walking. I walk a lot. Um, so last Saturday at the bank holiday weekend, I got down, say, around 10 or 11 o'clock. Um, so I, I got my first swim on Saturday. I just love swimming in the sea uh, in, in, in West Cork in the Atlantic. Uh, and I got a long walk, um, you know, maybe eight or nine miles. Um, and um, that, that allows me to unwind. I do that with some friends. Um, or sometimes I'll give it a shot myself and just get a good long walk in. Uh, and, so you um, exercise as Nihal Martin rather than as Taoiseach. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and you know, I love going to matches, sport. Now it's, we've been uh, because it's of now. COVID. Now it's different. Um, but that that was that's always been a great kind of release and for me, like to just to get in, in, in because I grew up. In Turner's Cross, I joined Nemo Rangers when I was eight years of age. I played soccer. Uh, so that's never left me. Our family were a fair sporting family. My father was a boxer and all of that. And so he, we would all spend, as kids Your growing up... He plays football too, doesn't he? He does, yeah. He plays with Nemo and Cork and all of that, independent with the Cork team. So all of that was just in our DNA. Yeah. So we lose ourselves in sport unconsciously <laughs> well, that's an asset being able to switch off it's to have great that. it's very healthy and you forget your politics you forget everything if there's a match on and you're two points behind with two minutes to go <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on and uh, best of luck with everything thank you very much indeed I don't know what else to say thank you good pleasure thank you indeed yeah. So that was today's podcast. Thank you for listening in. If you enjoyed it or found it helpful or interesting in any way, please just tell one other person about it. Share it on your Instagram story. Send it to someone. I'd be really, really grateful. I'd be most grateful if you would rate it and subscribe, but maybe that's asking too much. Our logo is by Kahalo Gara. Our music is by Only Ruin. And we are edited and produced by Alan Bennett. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.